We are going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians today, and when I say in the book, I mean all over in the book of 1 Corinthians. Much of the verses will, many of the verses will be on the screen, much of the book will be on the screen this morning, but let me also encourage you, if you have your own Bible, or if you don't have your own Bible and you have a pew Bible, I would encourage you to to grab that. It's on page 952 in the Pew Bible is the beginning of 1 Corinthians. We are going to be in a number of passages today in, in 1 Corinthians. And so I hope that you can, can look at the broader context of some of the verses that I share today. So I hope that you can, can open a Bible and look at it there in 1 Corinthians. We're walking through Paul's letters. We've walked through Galatians. It was an exasperated letter that he wrote about a specific subject, about Gentile circumcision. We looked at First and Second Thessalonians, a, a book that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He wanted to encourage them and to, and to strengthen them in their faith. This book, First Corinthians, uh, is a letter to the church in Corinth, and it's an occasional letter. It's not the, the, the letter that we'll read to the Ephesians later. It, it, was, a, it was meant to go to the, to the church in Ephesus, but also to the broader church in general, and, and while this book, as we'll look and see, while this letter has messages to the broader church at all, it was, it was very specific in several things that dealt specifically with the church in Corinth. And so we're going to look, last week we looked at kind of the, the, the really broad overview. Today we're going to look at a, at a little bit narrower view. First and Second Corinthians are two different letters written to the same church in Corinth. And in the midst of that, as I shared last week, what, the two letters that we have here in the Bible, First and Second Corinthians, they're, they're, there's a whole network of contacts made in that. There, there was probably a letter that has already been written to Paul. He's, he's responding in many of these things. He's responding back. He probably already wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. We see that in chapter 5, that there was already some communication that came from Paul that went to the church. We don't have that letter. In, in, in between First and Second Corinthians, there's an additional letter that is sent that we don't have there. And there was also a visit from Paul to the Corinthian church in the midst of all of that. So there's all, all kinds of letters, a visit, all of, this, all of this is happening in this context. And we just have these couple of letters in First and Second Corinthians to look at. The Corinthian church, as I said last week, was established. We saw it in, in, in Acts chapter 18 on Paul's second missionary journey. He, he traveled around through Macedonia, through Greece. He ended up in Corinth. And finally there, a lot of that due to a promise that came from Jesus himself that said, said you're going to be safe here. No one's going to lay a hand on you. Has a settledness in his spirit and stays for about a year and a half. In Corinth, with Priscilla and Aquila, he finds some friends. Uh, they establish a ministry there in Corinth. And that's how this Corinthian church forms, is in the, in second, in the second missionary journey that Paul makes. On his third missionary journey, then, he, he heads back out from Jerusalem, ends up in Ephesus. And while he's living in Ephesus, now with Priscilla and Aquila again, but now they're in Ephesus across the sea from Corinth, it's there while he lives there in Ephesus for about three years that this correspondence, these connections between Paul in Ephesus and the church in Corinth, what those, these correspondences happen in the midst of that. Corinth was a large cosmopolitan city with lots and lots of wealth, lots of, of sexual immorality, lots of things were happening in the city of Corinth, and it was affecting the people of the church. 
Paul knew, he knew the people who were there. He could see their faces. He knew their families. He was the one that started the church. He knew all of the connections. He knew what those people had come out of to join the church. He knew who they were. And so as he's writing this letter, as he's thinking about the people that he's writing to, he can see faces. He knows families. And he calls, and he, and he writes this letter, and he calls the Corinthian church, and he says, in every part of your lives, the gospel matters. In every part of your life, the gospel matters. That's what we looked at last week. That's the overarching theme of 1 Corinthians. The gospel matters in every part of your life. It impacts everything. It impacts what we eat and how we treat people and how we treat ourselves and our own bodies, how we respond to grievances, what our marriages look like, or if we even need to be married, how we are to worship, how we are to love, how we are to live in the afterlife. All of those things are impacted by the gospel. The gospel matters in every single part of our lives. And last week we looked at kind of two overarching sub-themes. One, the gospel calls us to be set apart. Paul right away in chapter one, when he writes to the, first Corinthian, in, to the Corinthian church, he says, we are called to be holy. You are saints, he says. And now you are called to be saints, to be set apart. There's something that is to be different about you than everyone else in the city of Corinth. You are saints, and you are called to be set apart. And the second thing that he says is the gospel calls us to be united together. It calls us to be united together. We are not, we are not just a group of individuals that come together as individuals once a week to gather for worship, but we are one body. We'll look at that today in chapter 12. We're one body. There's a hand, there's a foot, there's a heel, there's a leg, there's a head. But we all come together. All of us are needed together in cooperation. We have different gifts. We have different skills that we bring, but we are one body. Those are the overarching themes in 1 Corinthians. There's some specifics, though. In fact, there's a lot of specifics in 1 Corinthians that Paul looks at. In fact, Paul, Paul spends the first kind of first third of 1 Corinthians, he, he's responding to things he's heard. Chloe has sent some servants from Corinth. They've brought this letter over to Ephesus, and those servants have, have been sharing things with Paul, and so Paul is responding to what he knows has happened in the Corinth church. And then in the second part of the letter, he responds uh, to specific things that they sent him, a, a, a list, a letter that they had questions about, and he responds to those things. So he says, now, as for this topic, or as for that topic, he says, and he responds to those specific things. And so I've tried to combine them a little bit so that we can, can look at this whole book together this morning. And so I, I found just a, a few topics that, that come together the number of different problems and issues that Paul tries to talk about. He starts by talking about divisions and lack of unity in the church. He goes on to talk about issues of sexual immorality and the ways that we use our body. He talks about food, even in the midst of that conversation. He talks about food, particularly food that's sacrificed to idols. He talks about the gathering of the church body for corporate worship. And then he closes the book with the hope of the resurrection. So... Hold on tight this morning. We're going to try to run through this. I'm going to have you look at a number of different verses so that we can walk through these divisions and you can try to get a picture 
of this letter. Remember, this is, while we have a, it's a book in our Bible, this is a letter to people that Paul wrote. And so I hope that you're able to see that and to feel that as we read through it. Too often, too often I think we, we miss, we miss the, personal, the personal part of it as Paul wrote these letters. So let's try to look quickly at a number of these issues that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians. The church, the Corinthian church is divided. He starts off in the first part of the book. It's divided, particularly among different leaders who have come to the church. Paul started the church. Uh, Apollos, if you remember, Apollos was, was, was uh, an Alexandrian that, that Priscilla and Aquila met in Ephesus. They, they trained him in Ephesus. They sent him over to Corinth to minister, so he did come. The, the people of, of Corinth also know about Peter, Cephas, they say. They also, and, and so there's, a, there's these divisions all in one church, and they're saying, you know what, I, I'm in this church, but I'm a follower of Paul. And the other one that says, you know, I wasn't here when Paul started the church, but I'm a follower of Apollos. And another one is saying, you know, I'm, I'm following Peter. He's the, he's the original. I'm going to follow Peter. And, and so they have all of these different divisions. And we see that in, in chapter 1 right away. Um, uh, Chloe's people are come in, in verse 11. Chloe's people have been reported there's a quarreling among you, my brothers. He says in verse 12, what I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Paulus. Another says, I follow Cephas. Or, or some even say, I follow Christ. And Paul's response to them in this division is, it's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas. It's not even that you can have a division about following Christ. He says, it's all about Jesus. Verse 13, chapter 1, is Christ divided? Or was Paul the one that was crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says it's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And it's crazy for us to boast in anything other than Jesus. We're wired that way to boast in ourselves or even to lift up someone else. But it's crazy for us to do so. We should boast only in the Lord. Down in, continuing on, chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Don't know, you should not know, he continues on in chapter 2, you should not know anything. You should know nothing except Jesus and his crucifixion. In fact, that's what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about Jesus. He closes chapter 3, verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollo or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours, and you are Christ and Christ is God's. It's all about Jesus. There shouldn't be division in the church. We should be united in that we boast in Christ and in his crucifixion and only in that. He goes on to a second issue. The Corinthian church is having issues, and I said this last week a little bit, the church is having issues with sexual immorality. In fact, that's one of those letters that we don't have, one of those first letters that Paul wrote. 
he said to the church, there's a man, and he says this in, in chapter five, if you're flipping along there, he says, there's a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And there's others in the church who are having sex with prostitutes. And he says, this cannot be. He says it right away. If you go to chapter 5, he says, the church is to be set apart. And he says in, in verses 1 and 2, it's actually reported that sexual immorality among you, a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? He says, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I said this last week. He doesn't, he, he, he has chastised the man. Paul has, has done that in a previous letter. But here in 1 Corinthians, he's not chastising the man as much as he's chastising the church to say, you should be different. You should be set apart. You can't allow these things that, that in, in fact, here he says, not even the pagans are doing these things. But you can't allow what others are doing outside the church to be a part of the church. You're to set him aside. You're to kick him out. You cannot let this be a part of who you are. And he goes on to say, if you, if you keep going down there in, in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, um, he says, you're to kick him out so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. It's not just so that you can be set apart. It's not just so you can distance from him, but so that he might find so that he might find repentance, so that he might have his spirit be saved. You're to expel the immoral man. He says even a little leaven spoils the whole bunch. That's the a passage in this portion. But he also says, the, the, the other thing that was happening was people were, were sleeping with prostitutes and, and all kinds of sexual immorality, even besides this one man, was happening inside the church. And the people were beginning to say, um, it's fine for us to do these things. We're able to go to the, to the other temples, to the, to the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Greek gods and goddesses. And, and when we get there, there's, there's all these prostitutes and, and the way that they worship this Greek god or goddess is, is through sexual intercourse. It says it's okay for us to do these things because we're free in Christ. We can do it. We're not tied down by the law any longer. You see that in chapter six, if you're paging along there. Chapter 6, Paul is is quoting things that the people in the Corinthian church are saying. So look at verse 12 in chapter 6. He's he's quoting what people are saying. They're saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful, Paul says. All things are lawful for me, he says. That's again their quote. But I will not be dominated by anything. uh, These these people are saying, "I, I can do whatever I want, and I'm free in Jesus. The law doesn't apply to me anymore. I'm free to make my own choices, and I'm free from the law. And he says, that's not true. Paul says, hang on. Not everything, even if it's not forbidden by the law any longer, not everything is helpful. And even more than that, what Paul goes on to say as he tries to run each of these scenarios, each of these questions through the gospel, he goes on to say, your body matters. Your body matters, and what you do with your body matters. Look, continue on there. In the verses I was reading, in, in verse uh, 13, he says, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. We'll talk about that a little more in a second. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
he says. What you do with your body matters. And the reason that your body matters is because Jesus died in his body for your body. Your body matters, and you're to glorify God with your body. Continue on in verse 18 there in chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality, says. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. Your body matters, and what you do with your body matters. So you cannot, you cannot tolerate sexual immorality. So you have to expel this one man who is a a part of the church. And you, yourselves, you cannot, you cannot have this sexual immorality as a part of the church. You have to flee. Your body matters. He was on... As I mentioned there in, in chapter 6, he touches on it a little bit, and he continues on to talk about food issues. The Corinthian church was divided on a number of different food issues, particularly one of the things that he deals with the strongest here is, is food that is sacrificed to idols. So there's a number of other temples and, and um, places of worship in the city of Corinth, and they were having food idols or, or, or meat idols, and, and Christians, would, those, let me back up, those idols, the, the meat sacrifices that were given to those idols, then that meat would be sold in the marketplace. And Christians were going and buying that meat. It was cheaper for them. It was, it was a way for them to, to feed their family. And so they were buying that meat and they were be serving it and eating it in their homes. And some other Christians were coming and they were seeing that that was happening. They were seeing that this meat that had been offered to idols before in these other pagan temples was being eaten in Christian homes. And, and some people were coming and saying, you can't eat that food. It's, 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 already, it's been given to another god. It's been blessed before another god. And when you eat it, you're taking part in that god's worship. And so you have to stay away from that food. And other Christians were saying, I, we don't have anything to do with that god or that worship. We can eat it on our own. You'll see that in, in chapter 8 particularly is where he starts to deal with that. And one of the questions that they asked Paul, they asked him to, to report, to comment on this, was, was they said, is it okay to eat food that's been offered to idols at pagan temples? And Paul, Paul gives a qualified answer. He says in, verse eight, in chapter 8, he says, yes, but. He says, he says in verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4, It says, therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, again, this is, you can see he's responding to something they asked. Therefore, as as the eating of food offered to idols, we know, he says, that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. What he's saying is, is he says, we know that yes, there is these other temples. There are these other idols. There is this other worship that's happening, but those gods aren't God. There's only one God. And so while there might be carved statues, while there might be wooden idols, and while there might be these other things that are out there, 
There is no other God except our God. And so, yeah, this food has been given to some other carved creation, and it's okay for you to eat it. But he gives a huge qualification here. He says, but not if other believers struggle with the decision that you make in your freedom to eat that food. If you go on, continue on in what I just read in verse 7. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all see it that way. Not all see that there's some carved creations that aren't gods and things are worshipped to those gods aren't really worshipped. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, because they had been involved in those worship before, they eat food that's really been offered to an idol, and in their conscience, being weak, it's defiled. For some, you can do it. But for others, you can't. And so what Paul begins to say as, as he continues on here in, after this in chapter 8, he begins to say, for some of you, you have the freedom to do that. You know that, that it, it's, it's meat that was given to another idol, but, it, but you know that all creation falls under God's control, and so you're okay. But some people, some people don't have that freedom. Some people don't see it that way. And if you begin to eat this meat in front of them, you're causing them to stumble. And Paul says, while it might be okay for you and while it might be all right with your conscience, you have to surrender your rights for the love of the other person. In fact, he even, even before this, and earlier in chapter 6, he talks about surrendering our rights there too. He talked about how they were, they were taking each other to court uh, within the city, to the city courts. And he says, why are you even going to court? Once you've gone to court, you've already lost the battle. He says, he says if someone has an, an offense, if you have an offense against someone else, just bear the offense on your own. You don't need to take it. You just need to give up your rights. You need, to, you need to, to take it on yourself. That was in chapter 6, verse 7. And he goes on here in chapter 9. He goes on to say, follow my example, Paul says. When I was with you, I did not demand my own rights. He says in, in chapter 9, verse 22. To the weak, he says, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Give up your rights. Become all things to all people so that they might see Jesus. Because it's all about the glory of God. Paul a couple of different times says, you should follow my example, you should you should." Be an imitator of me, he says in, in chapter 11, verse 1. Be an imitator of me. Because we want the glory of God to ring out. And that's how he closes chapter 10. That verse, you know it was on the screen. We talk about it here often. I use it often. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul's talking about this. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it for the glory of God so that he is seen in the midst of it. The church also had, uh, the Corinthian church also had a division about how they were to gather and what they were to do when the body gathered together. We see this in chapters uh, 11, 12, and 13. 
there, in, in chapter 11, uh, Paul talks about how people were making a mockery of, of the Lord's Supper. That some were coming in early and, and they weren't taking it together. Some were coming in early and, and grabbing as much as they could and they were feasting on it and not leaving much for others and they wouldn't come together at the same time. And Paul says there's order, there's order to our worship and there's order to the way that Jesus instructed us to share in this Last Supper. You see that in, in chapter 11, verse 27. This is as Paul says, for, for I received from the Lord what I also have delivered to you in the church at Corinth. That on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he had given thanks, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Those verses are familiar to you. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. There's a way that we are to do it. We're to do it corporately, together. We're to do it in remembering Jesus and the act that he gave us on that night. There's order to our worship. That same theme continues on in in chapter 11 and 12 there. People were were coming to the gathering and they they were standing up in a gathering and they were speaking in unknown tongues that no one else could understand or explain. They were also, even if they were speaking in a tongue that could be explained, they were interrupting each other and they were talking over one another. And Paul says, you can't do this. There has to be order to our worship because our worship together is not about you. There's no individual, there's no place for individualism in the church. And that's where he goes on in chapter 12 to say we are all one body. Each of us has different parts. Each of us has different skills and gifts that God has given to us. And we're all one body, even though we're in different parts. So come together in the midst of it. There has to be order to it. He says our coming, our coming to worship and to remember and to speak and to heal and to prophesy and to teach All of those things, when we come together, are for each other. We are to love one another in the way that we come to worship. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 31, I hope you can turn here. He says, let me show you in in the way that we come together to worship together. I want to show you still a more excellent way. And then it's through that lens and focus, he writes what is probably the most famous part of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part, that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith and hope and love abide in these three but the greatest of these is love. You know that passage. You maybe had it read at your wedding. Paul didn't design it in this passage for your wedding, though I think he knows it applies there. Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in this portion of his letter to say this is the way you are to worship. Not that we run over each other, not that we prophesy or speak over each other. All of those things are going to fade away. But the greatest of all of these things is love. That we are to love one another. That's the more excellent way, he says. Paul closes his letter with questions about the resurrection. In chapter 15, he says, there are some of you that are saying there, there's no resurrection. You see that in, in verse 12. Of chapter 15. If Christ is proclaimed, raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and, our, and your faith, in fact, is in vain. He says, some of you are saying there's no resurrection, but this is one of the most important things. The resurrection of Jesus is what all of our other faith comes to. He said it a little earlier in chapter 15. Back up just a few verses. Uh, verse 3. I deliver to you first importance. This is what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. He appeared to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. This is the important, the most important. It's the importance that I received, and I've given it to you. Jesus was raised from the dead. And he was seen over and over and over and over. I saw him too, Paul says. The resurrection matters, he says. And so don't speak. Don't speak as if there's no resurrection. Don't let those, don't let those who are sharing that come into the church because the resurrection matters. And he goes on to talk about what will happen as the resurrection comes. He says, the resurrection matters. I want you to see this in verse 49 of chapter 15. The resurrection matters because we bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 49 says, just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, so shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, while we shall not sleep, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. We are being 
and we will be changed. We are becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus, Paul says. We're becoming more and more like him. We bear the image. We bear the image of the man of heaven. We're going to be resurrected because Jesus was resurrected. And we are going to be made complete like him. The worship team is going to come. We're going to close here in just a moment. Paul continues on, I think, to say, why does it matter? Why does it matter if there's division in the church? He says we're to be reflections. We are to be reflections of Jesus. We, are, we bear the image of the man of heaven. We are to be reflections of Jesus. We are to reflect his glory. We are to tell the truth about God. So why does it matter that there's division in the church? Because God is not divided. He is one. Why does it matter if there's sexual immorality that runs rampant in the church in Corinth? Because God is holy and pure. Why does it matter if there are some brothers that cause other brothers to stumble and fall in the ways that they eat or speak or the way that they worship together? Why does that matter? Because God is love. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that some say there's no resurrection or hope for the future? It's because God is victorious over sin and death, and it's come through Jesus. It matters because the gospel matters in every part of our lives. It impacts everything. And so in all things, in whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink in whatever we do, we do it to reflect his glory. We do it so that we might tell the truth about God. And so may we reflect. May we reflect the holiness, the completeness of our Lord, and may we display his glory in everything that we do. Stand with me this morning as we worship. But for your renown, 
the cross has saved us, so we pray your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Let your soul comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 